Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Dr. Kiki's Science Hour is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Dr. Kiki's Science Hour with Dr. Kiki, episode 92, recorded on Thursday, April 21st, 2011. The State of the Earth. This episode of Dr. Kiki's Science Hour is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes, movies, and more stream to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com forward slash twit. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Kiki's Science Hour, and I'm Dr. Kiki. I'd like to welcome you to the show that's one expert, one hour, one topic. And today, we're going to dig into the topic of planet Earth. Tomorrow is uh, is Earth Day. And in honor of Earth Day, I thought it would be a great topic to talk about. You know, what's going on environmentally? What's happening in terms of big disasters scientifically, politically, and in the science reporting field? So in that vein, um, additionally, I, I would like to say as well, uh, this is the one year, this week is the one year anniversary of the Gulf oil spill as well. So hopefully we'll get into that topic during the show. But in that vein, I've invited Andy Revkin. He is the Dot Earth blogger from the New York Times. He's a journalist and an author who spent a quarter of a century covering subjects ranging from the assault on the Amazon to the Asian tsunami, from the troubled relationship of science and politics to climate change and the North Pole. From 1995 through 2009, he covered the environment for the New York Times and is currently a senior fellow at the Pace Academy for Applied Environmental Studies at Pace University and continues to write the Dot Earth blog for the Times op-ed section. Uh, previous jobs include senior editor positions at both Discover Magazine and Science Digest, all this according to Wikipedia. He is also a talented musician, so hopefully we'll get him to talk a little bit about that. And uh, beyond that, it says online that he strives to report the truth. Andy, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today on the show. It's good to be on. It's great to have you. I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm. You've been. You've been reporting on environmental issues, earth-based issues for years. And I, I thought it appropriate to get you on the show this week um, to kind of su- talk summarily, talk, it, it kind of summarize your views on what you see um, going on now and how it, how it differs from, you know, previous earth days that you've, that you've um, been reporting through. Do you see any, any big changes that have come and gone uh, yeah, I think what I'm starting to see after, I can't believe it's coming up on like 30 years of science writing and then more and more yeah. on the environment, is a shift both in my own thinking and in um, where I would think there are solutions to the problem of how do we fit human aspirations, which are kind of infinite, on a finite planet. Uh, back in the 20th century, which seems to be an increasingly long time ago, of course, Yeah. Um, there was a mostly a woe is me, shame on you sort of uh, take on the environment. Uh, people were trying to 
who are concerned about degradation of ecosystems or shifts in the climate system and, and other problems uh, that were sort of subtle were pushing really hard um, to get attention because many of these issues are not like a tsunami. They're, they're very, which is the ultimate sort of news story. They're slow and, and they come along like what I call on Dot Earth uh, slow drip problems. Just a little mm -hmm. bit, a little bit, a little bit, and then it's like, oh, how did that happen? Um, and what I've come to understand is that after writing, I'd say the first 25 years of my journalism on these subjects was really focused on the outer external physical and biological world, on, on rainforests, on people's relationships to resources. And, and increasingly, as I've dug in on, on human nature, what makes us perceive certain problems and react to them effectively and what makes us inured to or ignore uh, other kinds of problems until after the fact. And then we look around and go, how did that, how did that happen? And that, so it's more and more, for me, a focus on, on the inner environment. Uh, what is it about our, our um, nature, our human nature, the inner nature of humanity that, that makes some of these issues uh, tough? Now, that, and that leads me in a couple of directions. One is that, oh, my God, information doesn't always matter, which is sort of a, a bummer for a journalist to come yeah. to a realization that information doesn't always matter. In fact, often doesn't matter. You could even say m almost all the time doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and then to say, okay, then what? And one reason I'm at Pace University now, not, not just writing for the Times, although I still do every day, um, is I'm trying to get a better sense of, as, as my title, I made up my title, Senior Fellow for Environmental Understanding. What I'm trying to do is work more on how, does, how, does, how do you get information to matter? And what, what can you learn about human behavior that can give you a better shot at that? And the other thing I've, I've gotten... Um, inspired by is is our innovative capacity our, our capacity to surprise ourselves in positive ways sometimes is remarkable you know you, you there are many troubling as aspects of what's going on on the planet right now but there's an incredible amount of progress that's been made there's more and more people moving out of poverty even though we still have two billion people cooking on firewood and, and dung and living yeah. really horrible lives not to, when, when i don't mean deprivation but lives of premature mortality lives that right. have no real quality and and so that leads me again toward um I, i've just become much more focused on new ways to sort of move forward were you interested in the human interest side of things when you first started reporting was that what 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 got you into the environmental journalism science journalism um area I, I grew up loving science. I, I grew up in Rhode Island, and um, I think my first real experiences of sort of wonder and, and excitement were in the natural world, um, going skin diving in the summer in um, parts of the Rhode Island coast, where you, the narrow river there, where you could I saw a scallop for the first time, uh, doing this sort of clap, clap, clap swimming. I never, I never seen a uh, a mollusk swim, and uh, that that got my attention and saw all the little blue eyes. And, um, and then Jacques Cousteau, uh, I grew up watching his show on TV and reading his books and, right. and he got me all excited about storytelling, not, you know, through every me medium, uh, writing as well as photography and film. And that all stuck with me. Although when I went to college, I really mainly wanted to be a scientist. At least I, that's what I thought. <laughs> Marine <laughs> biologist. I, and then uh, when I uh, took organic chemistry, I started to realize that, you know, to get a PhD, to really dig in on some single subject in science was not, didn't feel quite like me. And mm -hmm. um, I was like, I was lucky enough to 
get a fellowship that took me overseas for a while after college. And I saw this, the marvels of the world, uh, the big swath of it, and came back wanting to tell stories. And that's what led me to journalism. In your journalism and, 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 and you say online um, that you strive to report the truth, that it's the truth and facts that are interesting to you. You mentioned earlier, though, that, you know, more and more it's uh, and I, I believe there was an article by Chris Mooney this last week in, in Mother Jones uh, that kind of spoke to this. It's that, you know, science is based in facts, but people, you know, they don't they don't really care so much about the facts. There's uh, there's a lot more of uh, sway to emotion. And there are a lot of yeah. other things going into that. How, how is that affecting you now? You're moving into this area of public understanding and, um, and more academic pursuits, but at the same time, keeping your slow drip on the, on the blog. <laughs> well, the, um, I, I really do need a new category. The blog has these four categories of things I focus on. It's you know, uh, biodiversity, um, energy, um, uh, poverty, and, and how you forge progress. But what, what I need is a category on human nature. And mm-hmm. I think one thing that people, including myself, it's very hard to step out of your own reactions and your own reflexes and to realize that there is actually a science-based understanding that um, there are a number of people in, the, in, in any community who will never see eye to eye on something that, that you could argue day and night. You could throw studies at each other about nuclear power or genetically modified organisms or or the limits of organic agriculture or you know the opposite side and and or the nature and and risks from climate change and will not that will not change things and so i I think without absorbing that fact, meaning the fact of the great variety of human um, uh, responsiveness to risk, then you're kind of mm-hmm. stuck and and that's actually a, a established in research there are these pretty remarkable studies in what's called cultural cognition, where if you hand somebody the same background document, if, if a friend gives a friend a, a report on global warming and, and the person in the photograph and the article is changed, in other words, all the words, all the text is the same, but the picture, let's say, is someone in a suit and tie, and then some other person gets someone in uh, Birkenstocks and flannel, that the reaction to the information is fundamentally different based on... Huh that little change. So that, that's, that's something I need to convey. That's something I need to talk about, write about, not, you know, just about uh, the conventional stories on um, uh, striped bass or, or the nuclear power plant I just visited today, which um, mm-hmm. was a remarkable and interesting experience. You want to talk about that a little bit? I mean, nu- the sure. nuclear power is something that um, as a result of the Fukushima uh, plant and, and what's happening in, in Japan, it's on the top of the media's hit list recently. Sure. And I've been writing a ton about this, in- including about the behavioral issues, because, well, I went I live about 10 miles away from the Indian Point nuclear power complex. There's three reactors there, two of them. Uh, only two are running. The The first one was really a museum piece. It's one of the first atomic power plants built. It even has a fundamentally different shape. It was a different kind of reactor, different kind of fuel. And that one's literally uh, mothballed now. And I went in. I spent three, uh, almost four hours uh, in the bowels of the plant. I hadn't been in since I wrote a big story about the restart of one of these uh, power plants back in 1995. So for me, it was interesting to go back. And this time I got to go into the building that has the spent nuclear fuel in, in the big cooling pool. And 
it's just it is a pretty weird feeling to be staring down at the, in that green illuminated um, pool that has that plant's entire archive of spent fuel. You're looking down mm. to all the fuel that was um, that was utilized to generate electricity from 1976 to now is still right there in the small, really about a maybe 60 foot by 60 foot by 40 foot deep um, pool of water. Wow. And it's, it's just, yeah. it's easily, it, I mean, once you get inside, it's easily accessible, easily viewable. Um, how, how did, we've seen pictures of that also in, in Japan, the, uh, the spent fuel being cooled in the cooling pools where the, where, where fuel it, fuel is stored after it's been used. Um, Do do you think that people's perspectives on nuclear technology here in the United States is is moving in a a positive direction? I mean, since Three Mile Island here in the United States, we've made massive, I thought, positive um, uh, changes in terms of the public's perception of nuclear power, more more adoption, more acceptance of adoption of nuclear power. Now, with uh, what's happening happened in Japan, um, it seems like people are are suddenly pulling back, and there's a lot of fear. Well, it, uh, there was a lot of fear in in 1979 uh, as well. Um, I was actually on that trip after college. I was in Australia, I think, when Three Mile Island blew, but uh-huh. the fear. Um, you know, I, it was very, it really did stop um, American, any kind of forward movement on trying to go to the next generation of nuclear power. There, that was a time when the, this country was, and South Africa and Germany were experimenting with new nuclear designs. The ones we have around us are mostly a relic of the um, early Cold War days. They, they're, they're essentially the same thing that's in submarines powering powering them, just yeah. bigger. Um, and then, as you say, so I, I don't see that there was a lot of acceptance. You know, things basically stopped for a long time. Hmm. And then there, then recently, because of concerns about global warming, there, I think there was rising interest in trying to restart nuclear power. And now this new accident has rekindled a lot of uh, people's concerns. And, and it's appropriate in the sense that, boy, you want to be absolutely sure, not just 99% sure, but sure that the same thing can't happen at a nuclear power plant here. And one of right. the things that they were showing us today was the differences in the systems here. Uh, they have three different levels of backup generation for the uh, to keep the pumps and going to keep the fuel cool. The the complex is does is fifty feet ninety feet above sea level instead of right at um, the shore. Mm-hmm. There uh, there can you know even in the Atlantic Ocean, while it would never be the same kind of earthquake, you could have theoretically a tsunami generated by some of the activity across the Atlantic Ocean near Africa that could come up the Hudson River. But, and again, every plant is different. So it's, it's good in a way that people are reviewing issues uh, with existing plants. One thing that would be sad in a way is if this stops this sort of beginning of, the beginning of what would be a new generation of um, refinement of designs that are so much more fundamentally um, um, unlikely to have anything that that comes close to being like a meltdown uh, that that would be unfortunate i think especially again if you care about climate change or energy security generally and you take nuclear off the table it just makes yeah. the challenge of moving forward that much harder 
Yeah, it does. I mean, I know people are are concerned about what do we do with the waste? What do we do with the actual the the question of safety um, as the plants are working? But uh, the truth is, we've got a bunch of aging dinosaurs in the United States and around around the world. And it's it is good to be taking a second look and being make sure that what we do have is safe for now and yeah. for the future. But for for I, I totally agree with you that the what's going to be built, what we want to have built. I think there's something like somewhere between 30 or 50 plants that are in just the uh, planning stage where they're new design plants with new designs, nuclear plants. Um, and they're just in the stage of uh, gathering paperwork and trying to get, get past the regulations and, and get people to sign on the dotted lines so that they can start being built. And yeah. um, that's the hardest phase to get past, I think. Yeah, now, and there are other realities to keep in mind. One, one is nuclear is ridiculously expensive. And yeah. it's not expensive just because it's dangerous. It's, you know, it requires a lot of... It's, it's just big and, and takes a huge amount of upfront money to develop a plant and, and to pass all the safety thresholds and to train, train a thousand or more employees. The one mm-hmm. I was at today at Indian Point, there's 1,100 people who work there and so it's a huge enterprise, and that, if anything, will be the constraint that keeps nuclear moving forward. And there are, even now, a lot of subsidies for nuclear that aren't immediately obvious, um, one of which is essentially that a big chunk of the liability, if there were an accident at a plant, is really covered in the end by the government. Um, Japan had mm-hmm. an even more cushy setup that way, so it's not uh, TEPCO, not to- Tokyo Electric Power, that's going to be on the hook for the enormous costs from what happened there, but the Japanese uh, people. And, and could those possibly things, be an you know, explanation. Yeah, yeah, okay. for sure. You know, why why uh, take extra care if, if you're covered, mm-hmm. essentially, for the worst case? Why, why worry yeah. about the worst case? Yeah. Um, to move from, from nuclear power um, to the, the bigger question of, uh, I guess, climate change and also look at, uh, look at, the anniversary of the Gulf oil spill. You did a lot of coverage uh, last year on the on the Gulf oil spill. Um, do you think anything's changed? I mean, there's been a big call for you know starting more, you know, keeping drilling going, continuing drilling for oil. Um, do you think that that this, that any science has come back that's shown us okay, made uh, the accident, the results of the accident? Do we know what kind of damage has been done? Um, and do we also know, do we have the regulations? Are they being put in place to allow safer drilling in the future if we allow it? Two big different um, questions. But. Yeah, I, in terms of ecological damage, uh, I don't foresee there being any big surprises at this point. The, um, the one place to look to, to sort of assess the long-term prospect is at the Persian Gulf, where... Uh, while this is the the world's largest um, um, accident of this sort that we know of, the uh, release, the intentional release of oil into the Persian Gulf by Saddam Hussein in the first Gulf War was the world's largest oil spill. And that ecosystem, you know, right, essentially warm waters, tropical um, conditions, coral reefs, um, has come back in a very strong way. And it came, it was starting to recover even a few years after that vast vastly larger oil uh, release so nature is is capable of a lot of resilience um and keep in mind that the deep ocean ecosystem there there are significant areas that where there are natural seeps of oil so 
while there were certainly you know fish and birds and 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 other wildlife that was harmed badly by this, um, I don't foresee that being a big um, uh, issue in the long haul. Now the other the calamity was more socioeconomic and social. The people along the Gulf Coast there, there the, even though shrimp um, fishing and and um, and other kinds of fishing aren't a giant industry, a multi-billion-dollar thing. They're they're a, a, an enormous cultural um, reality and part of the durable uh, picture of that that region. And that really that, that was a body blow for many communities there. And they'll be kind of recuperating for quite a long time. Uh, so in that sense, I, th- that's kind of my feeling about the overall scope of the um, this disaster. the The question of risk about about whether this kind of drilling can or should go forward, uh, whether BP should be allowed to do it again at all, um, what's up with deep water, you know, whether there'll be criminal charges filed finally over the assault, you know, actual trials for the uh, deaths of the 11 uh, people who are on the, killed on the rig. There, there's, I, I see some good signs that the mineral mismanagement service, as I called it in some of my blog posts, <laughs> really is getting a thorough scrub. And the problem in, in these kind of arenas where you have an agency that's both responsible for promoting mineral extraction and regulating that is that's a, that's a bad mix and it's there's some things the department of agriculture does that are the same way and even the energy department is promoting fossil fuel extraction even as it's working on the other end to come up with some technologies for for limiting emissions that that, that always leads in uh, ways that can be counterproductive and it's up to people to not be lulled back into a sense of um, just uh, equanimity. That one of the, the the most enduring, effective lines Obama has had in speeches in the last few years has been: that we have to get off of our shock to trance style of energy policy and energy awareness. And this gets back to that behavioral issue, uh, the behavioral issues I was talking about before. It's yeah. it's fine to say that in a speech, but how do you actually um, get people to realize that there are really profound uh, issues that rise through our, um, our, you know, deep dependence on oil and, and substantially unnecessary deep dependence on oil, that kind of thing. Yeah, Obama was in San Francisco today. So uh, I was actually, my traffic was actually affected by his, his visit. He had some breakfast downtown that had, okay. had downtown gridlocked. So in effect, a lot of people were wasting a lot of gas because he was in town. <laughs> which I think is a little funny. But um, do you do you think, I mean, he's he's he made in the State of the Union address, he made a big statement. Um, and I know last year, the, or at the beginning of this year as well, before the State of the Union, you were saying he needs to get a, a mind trust of people. He needs to get people to basically come up with some really good ideas, some direction, and then act on it. And do you do you think he's moving in that direction in any way? It's such a tough, you know, he or he is already gearing up for the presidential uh, race in 2012, knowing that everyone's eyes are still mainly on the economy and that that new initiatives involving significant spending are not going to move in a meaningful way. Yeah. That's, that's a bad mix. That's not the great time to be talking about, you know, a great new push on energy um, uh, energy action. I, I think you could think, well, there must, there is a way to do it, but I just don't see that as being likely given the, the current politics. And what happens um, in 2012, 
is another question. If he were to win a second term, he would have the freedom that comes with a second term to push a little harder on things that he really cares about, the legacy issues. If a Republican were to win, it always depends on who the candidate is and whether the Tea Party phenomenon has legs, which it looks like that may not. You know, a big question come is about what will the face of the Republican Party be in 2012 coming into right. the election? If it is, if it moves toward the middle and you have a, a moderate or even possibly progressive Republican vying for those um, independent voters, um, there could be a chance if that person were to prevail to push uh, aggressively on energy the way Richard Nixon pushed uh, into China. You know, there, that's been said in, in, in there, there are ways to, to, for that to work. Now, again, all pie in the sky. No one really knows how that's going to play out. <laughs> Yeah, that's a little bit too far off in the future. I mean, we could get into maybe some of the um, prediction betting stuff and see how the see how the markets can 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 pick a winner. But I think that's still a little bit too far off. Yeah. Um, there is a find looking for a few things online. Um, I found the Heartland Institute, heartland.org, has you listed as an alarmist. The New York Times lead <laughs> science correspondent. Andrew Revkin acts as a megaphone for global warming alarmists, broadcasting their every far-fetched claim as if it were the gospel truth. He acknowledges that there, quote, there is no smoking gun in the climate change debate and that, quote, for every PhD, there is an equal and opposite PhD. Yet he routinely dismisses any suggestion that climate change is not the man-made crisis he thinks it to be. What do you think about, about being defined in such a way? <laughs> Well, I I won't paint a falsely equivalent picture, but I, there are certain liberal bloggers who say equally uh, scandalous things about me. Um, yeah, climateprogress.org being being a place that loves to uh, hate the New York Times and doesn't seem to understand my uh, approach to these issues. So that doesn't mean I feel I'm doing my job. You know, I think there's some journalists who say, hey, if everybody hates me, then I must be effective. Right. <laughs> I, don't, I really don't define effectiveness that way. But I will say that um, our rhetoric, our, the discourse on issues like global warming has been owned way too long by polarizing voices um, that oversimplify um, things for the sake of getting attention or, or pulling it a durable um, kind of small, durable but small part of the um, populace. And what I mean by that is uh, this is the, and I wrote about this first way back in 2006. I did a piece called Yelling Fire on a Hot Planet, which is easy for people to Google for, that criticized both, uh, both camps, the, the catastrophe camp and the hoax camp on global warming is as sometimes being apt to, well, many times in some cases, being overstating their their case, um, the the idea that that human driven warming of the climate system that people are, the idea that people are not capable of influencing this climate system in potentially prof profound ways is is kind of there's no way to to say that there is that that's something you could say reliably and saying that. Climate is an unfolding catastrophe. The global warming right now is is every extreme of weather that we see around us is our fault. Essentially, is also equally equally untenable. There, there's so much work on uh, what's called paleoclimatology, the climates of the past, that shows not long ago that even uh, just centuries ago and millennia ago, there have been extraordinary upheavals in the climate system that uh, dwarf even some things that we've seen lately that seem so dramatic. And also tornadoes, mm -hmm. for example, there's no evidence of 
the power, the kind of tornadoes that kill people, the, the F2 and above on the scale yeah. of tornado ferocity, there's no trend at all. So you can't, um, I think sometimes we have this lens of looking around us at, and looking with the eyes based on what we were thinking about that day. And, and it just isn't that simple. So, so catastrophe and hoax. And by the way, and this, you know, to interpret something as dangerous, to, to determine that a certain level of warming, a certain level of sea level change, a certain odds of that are a catastrophe is pretty much a values judgment, not a scientific judgment. And in other words, that's, it's uglier than that. It's, people have to kind of hash that out. And too often the Heartland Institute or some progressive or liberal groups will kind of conflate what we know in, in the science and with what they want to do with policy. And the policy question is an entirely different debate and one that's uh, uglier innately because it involves that full range of human values and views and also entrenched interests that, you know, not all of which are, are going to be honest about things. Right. And, and, and like you said, there's, there's going to be a, the dishonesty on both sides of the issue to, to push policy in the way that they'd like it to go, to be able to push it in the, a direction that's more favorable to themselves. And um, additionally, I've, I've seen online, I mean, just looking at different, um, different interactions in, on blogs, comment threads, um, or in forums, it seems like uh, people, people complain that denialists constantly use the same um the same arguments over and over again um but i've seen the same arguments being brought up on the other side of it as well so there is this um i guess it's it's a pattern where both sides have certain facts or certain uh certain arguments that they've learned and they use those to try and counteract the other side's arguments and then everything deadlocks and you don't, and you don't yeah. have anyone trying to find new information. Yeah, and it's exasperating to me to see that, especially when the other thing that's been revealed through some of the social behavioral science is that um, there's a lot of things that people at those edges of the uh, curve agree on. Um, mm -hmm. And I see this even reflected in Dot Earth on, on the blog commentary. There are people who are fundamentally divergent views of climate science who, who drive Priuses and hate to waste energy. So, boy, what a thing to go to waste, to have people who agree on the need and the responsibility and opportunity in saving energy for all the, the, the benefits that come with that, to mm -hmm. just get locked in some fight over, over um, how fast glaciers are going to melt. That, that yeah. I find very frustrating. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you there. It's the, there's, there's, there is something, there's a place at which progress can be made, where people can agree and things can be done to affect the United States, you know, maybe even without policy changes taking place, um, that that people can do things personally to save energy that trickle back to save energy for uh, and and to save energy for the entire nation and 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 therefore maybe have less carbon dioxide. That's a nice that, that's kind of nice. Um, it's a yeah. nice side effect. Um, yeah. But at this, but at the same time, like you said, they're just they're stuck in the deadlock fight, and we want to get out of that somehow. Yeah, it's um, um, well, you know. Again, what I try to do on the blog, I try to um, foster a, or create a sort of an environment where people can find those common um, mm -hmm. find points of overlap, and not just argue from the edges. Um, 
it's it's hard. Try, the, the the web is all an experiment, and I'm just trying to experiment with ways to foster productive discourse. And and sometimes it all devolves back into uh, some yelling and some <laughs> not nice things. But uh, but I think it's um, I, I think there's uh, signs of that this can work out. And one one thing I'm trying to do at Pace University is to build more of a to work on building uh, learning spaces online that are. Um, in other words, an educational equivalent to .dot earth. So people, young people, while they're still forming their attitudes about the world, can start to you know experiment with reaching out to people who they might feel are very different views on things. Oh, that's interesting. So in effect, creating um, a, a more collaborative environment for learning. Yeah, very much so. And again, the other the other merit in crosstalk. So many new ideas come when disciplines or divergent people with divergent views. Um, get together and share notes, share experiences, um, shave away at mm-hmm. each other's ideas, uh, put little pieces of information together that wouldn't come together otherwise. Interesting. I'd lo- I, I love that. That I good luck with that. I hope that goes goes very well because we need more people <laughs> sharing ideas, definitely, <laughs> and we need more education. Yeah. Teach the children, oh or they will lead the way. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. What I what I love to see is um, not so much teach kids stuff, but foster an environment where they can learn to love learning. Yeah, yeah and and that's at every age. I did a piece on the blog not long ago. Uh, my wife was a science teacher for a long time and middle school, and she and her teaching partner did this um, project every year with students where they had to build bridges out of balsa wood and and then break them by adding weight to them until they you know, failed and whichever one lasted the longest was kind of a winner. But at the same time, they all had to analyze why their bridges broke and what they would do differently the next time. So they, and they had to do it on a budget. They had to kind of using fake money, they had to buy the wood. So they got points not only for durability, but also for economy, which is kind of like the real world. Mm-hmm. And, and there's this video I put on Dot Earth. I think the web, the post is called uh, learning thing, learning by learning by breaking or something like learning things by breaking nice. things. And the video shows these kids the, the level of excitement in having this uncertainty in their learning, not which is so different than memorizing a multiplication table or set of facts about history. And yep. it's hard to hard to build it into our education, but that's a fundamental root for me of sustainability is making kids resilient and um, collaborative. Yeah, and I can't I can't say the number of times I've heard about people who have ended up going into science or engineering that one of the first things they did um, to find out that they, to realize that they loved science or learning in general was take apart, take apart their parents' VCR or take apart, you know, find right. something and break it. Maybe they didn't put it back right. together, you know, but they they got to take something apart and they, and see how, see kind of how it worked. And, and there, there are a number of just people all over the world who have probably gone that route. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Learning by breaking is very important. Um, yeah. I need to take a quick break for a word for our, from our sponsor. So if you just uh, hold on for just a moment, I'd like to thank Netflix.com for, for sponsoring this hour of Dr. Kiki's science hour. Netflix.com. I'm going to see if I can uh, get to my copy that I 
that somehow disappeared. I don't know where it went. I was going to read something. Anyways, uh, Netflix.com has thousands of TV episodes and movies that you can stream to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. I do it at home all the time myself. Um, You can also get DVDs by mail in about one business day if the DVD route is preferable to you. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com forward slash twit, T-W-I-T. Additionally, you can watch thousands of TV episodes and movies. And I actually have a pick for this week. My pick of the week is Sanctuary. It's a uh, science fiction fantasy-ish program about... um, about uh, different kinds of creatures um, on our on our planet and the sanctuary group that allows them to flourish and survive while at the same time studying them. It's a it's an interesting series, not necessarily scientific all the time, but you know we like to have our suspension of disbelief every once in a while. Uh, so you can catch Sanctuary on Netflix and stream it instantly to your home. You don't have to wait for those DVDs to show up. I've uh, I've watched it myself. I, I, I got to the end of the series and I'm waiting for the next season to post currently so that I can watch more. I've got to watch more and find out what happens. Um, let's see. So... Instantly watch this TV show, or you can choose from all the other ones that they have available, other movies. Additionally, you can catch a movie like Hot Tub Time Machine. That's a pretty good movie. Again, not very scientific, but fun. Um, And you can watch all this stuff when you register for a free trial membership. Go to Netflix, N-E-T-F-L-I-X dot com forward slash twit, T-W-I-T, and be sure to sign up for your free trial. We thank Netflix for their support of twit. Now, back to the show. Um, I found another interesting um, interesting post online this week talking about um, science and uh, and and the I guess the the facts or the ideas that people put up. and um, there's a what's what's up with that is one of the uh, website is a website out yeah. there that um, this week, April eighteenth, there was a post saying that, Revkin of the New York Times takes back his statement that skeptics are more knowledgeable about the science. And so there's a quote that uh, was in your blog uh, that has been, was disappeared, now replaced by, quote, I've removed a line I tacked on here that gave too simplistic a summary of the Six Americas study. And then uh, they grab a, a little tiny excerpt from the Six Americas study uh, to support their own side of things. But um, we can talk about this and maybe what went into your removing that line and um, how how you feel about their interpretation of, of that removal. Yeah, a, a reader uh, uh, challenged the way I had summarized it because the whole report is online and you can look through it. Yeah. And essentially um, what I had written was not correct. Sometimes I'll um, put in a, a modification of, of um, something I wrote and with a little asterisk and stuff. Frankly, I didn't have time. So I put in an <laughs> explainer and said, you know, what I wrote earlier really was way too nuanced. There are, see, in reality, this study showed that there are other aspects of the human, uh, of the science on, on, on climate change that uh, people who are worried about it know better than people who are um, 
not worried about it or skeptical about it. So I would have to write several paragraphs. I'm a busy guy. I'm work, trying to work on a big writing project for the National Academy of Sciences. I'm trying to mm. teach two courses. So I just deleted it. You know, if they want to make fun of me or, or get some mileage out of Orevkin censoring something, that's fine with me. You know, I don't really care. <laughs> You're like whatever, and, and life is too sounds, short. Exactly. It sounds like you're you're really busy. I know that you were really busy uh, reporting and blogging for the New York Times, and that you moved into this position at Pace University so you could have a little more uh, time for writing those longer projects. How's that working out for you? <laughs> it's I'm busier than I ever was by far. Um, I, I I'm a little more sane, even though I'm busier because. The one element that's no longer in my life is is that specter of when a tsunami hits the Japanese coast, I'm not on an airplane and saying goodbye to my family for a while. When There were a number of times through my 15 years at the Times when I was gone for, for weeks because of some breaking news. The first time was not even about the environment. It was the crash of Flight 800 off Long Island because I was a science writer and knew something about gadgets that I was immediately wrangled up to be one of the... Um, people in writing about the investigation, what happened in that plane and 9-11 mm-hmm. and, and uh, other, the other issues. Uh, you know, last year, when I, after I left the Times, when the Gulf oil spill happened, that was the first time, that was the first big news event that I kind of didn't have to immediately, I started writing about it immediately, but I didn't have to disrupt my life completely. And, you know, I'm, I'm now 55 years old and kind of like, there comes a time when you do want to have a little sanity and, and and I was so I just shifted gears and you give up some things with that and but at the same time again my life has never been busier it's just a little more there's a little of the edge is gone. Do you think it's uh, or or do you find yourself focusing more on um, the personal interactions that you have with your students and um, this kind of smaller more um, intimate academic setting than, say, uh, when you're writing for a broad general audience? Do you, do you, do you find that, um, that you're treating things differently? Um, I love working with students. I had taught journalism or before quite a while ago, and then I taught at Bard College uh, a seminar on communication and the environment. And, and I love experimenting in the classroom, and, and for that Stuff I did at Bard um, was graduate students, and I s- split them up at one point to, to try to re- emphasize this challenge that scientists face when they get into the public arena of mm-hmm. just conveying their science or getting involved in talking about policies that they care about as human beings. Because every scientist, believe it or not, is actually a human being as well. Really? And not everybody. Yeah, well, you <laughs> might be aware of this. And yeah. uh, But some... <laughs> And so what they had to do was they had to defend two different people in the climate wars. One was Susan Solomon, who in 2007 was the chairwoman of the co-chair of the IPCC, the climate panel report on science. And uh, Jim Hansen, who's become a very passionate activist, um, as well as being a much lauded scientist studying global warming. And the class had to split into two groups to kind of defend both approaches. And and afterwards, I asked them, you know, secretly, like, well, if, if you had to choose one of those people ahead of time, which would you have chosen to to be a champion of? And they all, they virtually all liked the Jim Hansen approach. But after they went through the exercise, they realized there, there are significant issues that come 
when you move from science into advocacy. And this is something else I've written mm-hmm. on the blog about a few times. Yeah. So, moving- that, you know, again, I, I like that kind of experiment. I like having, you know, I think in this century, any, any uh, graduates, graduate level and many undergraduate experiences, if they're still the old-fashioned me standing at a podium, you know, giving a lecture, I don't think that's going to really, that doesn't fit the skill set I would like them to develop. It, mm-hmm. it has to be more exploratory where we're all exploring together. I'll give you one example. Right now, I'm co-teaching a course that I just came into pace this year. So it's an existing peak course and um, how to make documentary film. And mm-hmm. every year, it's some different subject. This year, they're doing it on shrimp, uh, shrimp aquaculture, shrimp farming. And the, for the spring break, the students went to Belize. I got to go with them, which was fantastic. <laughs> teacher and, and we're pro- finishing a, a really neat film on on efforts to um, grow shrimp and while cutting environmental harms it's and it's going to be a really cool bit of movie making but it was it's fundamentally collaborative and where we're co-creating this thing it's not um it's just great yeah and the students are learning at the same time that they're that they're creating yeah. this product right they're getting yeah. they're getting that that Wonderful collaborative experience, and hopefully we'll go on to do more. Um, I guess I want to bring us bring us back a little bit as we get to toward the the end of the hour. Bring us back a little bit toward the Earth Day theme of things. Um, is there is there anything that you think that we need to be focusing on that people should? Um, or is is Earth Day something that people should be thinking about or focusing on? Is it something that is helpful in your view? Yeah, I think so. In a way, um, on on my blog, amid all of the posts that I write that are somewhat technical or looking at issues that are breaking in the world right now about um, what's going on with the radiation from Japan or um, some new dispute about climate policy, once in a while, I, I try to stick on a piece that's just about the fact that the skunk skunk cabbage in the woods just poked its head out of the leaf litter uh, <laughs> here where I live, and or um, just the other day for the for the memorial of the uh, the uh, Gulf spill, I I yeah. decided not to do yet another piece analyzing the broad implications of this thing and just put up a picture of this wonderful little ceramic bell that a neighbor of mine hung in the woods here a few years ago. Um, as a way of, and a silent bell, the clapper doesn't really hit the side. So it struck me as somehow uh, resonant for me about the losses of the 11 lives that we don't, you know, again, in all the debate about oil policy, we forget that there were 11 people whose lives were lost and families whose lives were wrecked by what happened. And it just seems simpler and more appropriate. And so in that way, Earth Day to me is a is a moment for people to hopefully take a walk in, in their environment, whether it's what Thoreau, one thing I love to try to talk to people about is, is the history of understanding that the environment, which we too often, I think, uh, have in our heads as the wilderness, um, is, mm-hmm. is, is what's around us. And there's a way to improve every little part of it in a, little, in a small way, including um, very much the human environment. And the, the person I think about most along these lines is Rene DuBose, who when I was in college, in the 70s, I read every book, and I got to interview him just before he passed away in 1981. Mm-hmm. And and he's he's the one who said, "Think globally, act locally." But I think his much more powerful message was simply that a human environment can be a, a beautiful and pr- productive and um, 
ecologically rich uh, place, even if people have been deeply modifying it. And if there's one thing we need to get comfortable with in this century, it's the reality that the world is increasingly what we choose to make it, not just through greenhouse gases, but and a lot of it's out of our control. We put pythons in the Everglades and and right. um, and they're having they're having a really good time there as I've written a few times. <laughs> and so we have to kind of just to some extent we have to get over us ourselves. Yeah. We have to embrace the reality that for this part of the the um, earth's journey it's very much a human uh, artifact and to to make the best of that uh, as it relates to our own aspirations and also our our ethical um, you know thinking. I'm going to try and go out and appreciate the parrots in San Francisco. Those are definitely <laughs> there you go, exactly. of, <laughs> of human activities. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. I think, I think that's a, a positive way to think about it because so often there's a um, combative spin put on environmentalism. Um, and if you think about it simply as, your environment or the environment and not necessarily as trying to force any one viewpoint on any person, um, but, and, but try and get across that general appreciation of this is where you live, or this is the area that's uh, adjacent to where you live, or this is the area where animals live or where somebody else lives. Try and try and put those pieces together eventually, but you have to start somewhere. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and I also know that you are a, um, that you're a musician. So do you have any, Indeed. any favorite birthday type tunes that you can suggest for mm. people's listening pleasure tomorrow? Well, I don't know if I have time, but I could grab my guitar. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> well, I have a, there's one on my, on my website. There's a, there's a post, uh, if, if you Google for Seeger, as in Pete Seeger and Revkin and uh, Dot, uh, you'll find um, a song I wrote about our um, our fossil fuel um, love affair that um, I think says a lot. It's called Liberated Carbon. And there's a photo yes. of me playing with Pete Seeger, which I get to do once in a while. And it's a wonderful um, experience, needless to say. Oh, that's got to be. That's got to be great. Yeah, I think I, I, I read in an interview, you said you changed some of the lyrics of that song as you at, at some point, at one point. Yeah, you know, folk music is always evolving. So I, I don't feel uncomfortable about that. There was a line, when I wrote it, when I first wrote it years ago, I um, had in my head, you know, when you write a song, you kind of have a framing. And my frame of reference was that of the environmentalist. And, and, it had a line about Satan's black label, meaning gasoline. And, and recently, you know, as I said, you know, my thinking has evolved over the years in terms of uh, when I look at our fossil fuel habit, I don't say, woe is me so much as, boy, you know, we were enjoying something that seemed pretty fundamentally enjoyable. And now science is revealing that this comes with lots of, not just science, but, you know, re the reality of coal mining, the reality of the, what can happen with uh, oil production gives us a broader sense now that there there are um there are externalities that we hadn't really considered even as we got very uh, prospered as a society and and our our wealth and our technology and our agriculture grew around these fuels so so i modified that line to uh uh it's, it's still got a bit of a, a you know a twist to it it's um now it's set instead of satan's black label i think it's opex black label so i'm OPEC. still kind of poking a finger at somebody but um <laughs> 
And every time there's somebody to poke a finger at, you can find, you can change the lyric if you need to. Well, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, know, actually, I think I did last summer. I I might have sung it at least once saying BP's Black Label. Nice. Can people, do you have any, do you perform often? Can people in the uh, New York, New Jersey area find you playing at any at any open mic nights or anything, if they're in the area? Uh, I, I wish I had more time. I play, I'll be playing at the Clearwater Festival on the Hudson River, on, on the boat, the Clearwater. We, the band I'm in, Uncle Wade, we play every um, June on the Clearwater. We're kind of the boat band, which is really fun. fun. And um, other than that, myspace.com slash Andy Revkin, R-E-V-K-I-N, and, and myspace.com slash Uncle Wade. Awesome. And uh, people out there, you can also find Andrew Revkin at the Dot Earth blog, which is uh, NewYorkTimes.com and YTimes.com forward slash Dot Earth. You can also find him on Twitter at Revkin. So he's a prolific Twitterer as well. Andy, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a lot of fun. It's been really great to meet you and to get to speak with you about um about stuff that you've been thinking about and working on for for so long and so intently. Well, thanks for having me on. It was really fun. It's fun. And I, I wish you good luck with your educational academic advent- adventures. I want to hear, I'd love to hear more about the um, the collaboration projects that you're working on. I think that would be... Okay. Sounds very interesting. We'll stay in great. touch. Thank you. I hope so. Thanks a lot. And thank you. Have a great evening. And this has been Dr. Kiki's Science Hour. Thank you very much for joining us here this evening. And again, many thanks to Andy Revkin from the Dot Earth blog for joining us to discuss and celebrate Earth Day. Hopefully everyone out there will um, take a moment tomorrow to appreciate and enjoy your surroundings. Take a look around you at the environment and go, ha, huh, this is the Earth. This is where I live. Let's make it nice. We can make these things nice. We have, we have potential and we have the, the capabilities with our hands, with our minds to be able to uh, change our environment and make it what we want it to be. So I hope everyone out there takes a moment to think about that a little bit tomorrow in honor of Earth Day. I'm Dr. Kiki and yes, this has been Dr. Kiki's Science Hour. Be sure to turn, tune in next week. Our guest is going to be Josh Rosenau from the... Uh, Uh, I can't remember what the acronym means again. Oh, dear. NCSE, National Something for Science Education, National Committee. I'm blanking on it, but NCSE to discuss what or or what is or isn't a scientific controversy and uh, probably to talk a lot about what's going on in evolution uh, at the political uh, school fronts these days. You can find me online. I'm Dr. Kiki on Facebook and also on Twitter. And you can subscribe to Dr. Kiki Science Hour in iTunes. And you can also go back and find past episodes of this show at twit.tv forward slash Kiki. Please subscribe. We like you subscribing. It helps, helps the numbers. Thanks for tuning in once again. All I ask is one hour a week. I hope it makes your world a whole lot more interesting. Bye.